So take a few moments to ensure that your mind is settled down in the present, calm and clear as much as possible. And also that you have a positive, altruistic bodhicitta motivation for being here, participating in this class. So in this meditation, we'll look at the notion of I, um, first what the other schools say as the illustration of the person, and then what Prasangika say. So the Vaibhashika school says that the person, the illustration of the person, is the collection of aggregates. So let's investigate that. When we die, our consciousness leaves this body and goes into the bardo and for a while is in the bardo body. So when that happens, is that still the same collection of aggregates? Then after some time, we'll take a new life, hopefully a fortunate one, another precious human life. Um, but then we'll have a, a, a different body than we have now. So when we're born in that next life with that new body, is it still the same collection of aggregates as in this life? So it's pretty easy to see that it's not. So then how can our present collection of aggregates be the self, the person? If you feel confident that that is not possible that your collection of aggregates cannot be the person, the self, then focus on that, hold that awareness.
And then there are some Vaibhashikas who say that the illustration of the person is the continuum of the aggregates. So we as a person are just one thing, but the continuum of the aggregates consists of many moments. So which moment of the continuum of the aggregates is oneself, is the person? Is it the one that exists in this moment or the one that existed at eight o'clock this morning or at nine o'clock last night? If we were to say that all of them, all of those moments are the person, then we end up being multiple persons, thousands, millions, zillions of persons for each moment of the continuum of aggregates. So if you can understand that the continuum of the aggregates cannot be the person, then focus on that awareness. There's some Buddhist schools who say that the subtle mental consciousness is the illustration of the person. So if that was the case, then we would not be our body. And then how could we say things like, I am hungry, I am cold, or saying that somebody is young or is old. Also, when it comes to recognizing a person, we wouldn't be able to do that by looking at their body or looking at their face, because those are not the person. So see if you can conclude that the subtle mental consciousness cannot be the self, the person. So each one of us is made up of physical and mental aggregates, many, many different parts of body and mind. And these are 
all constantly changing each and every moment. So it's actually impossible to find any static moment within our aggregates of body and mind that we can point to and say that is the I. So instead, there's just this continuously changing process of aggregates that is labeled I or person, self. And that is why the prasangikas say that the person is just imputed independence on the aggregates. The aggregates are the basis of imputation, and then the I is imputed on them. So the aggregates are there first, and then that basis is labeled I, or person. So if the aggregates as a whole or any part of them were already the I, it wouldn't make sense to impute I in relation to them because a basis of imputation and the imputed object like I are different. They can't be the same thing. So see if you can come to the conclusion that the person, like I, or any other person, is nothing more than what is labeled independence on the aggregates. And if you feel confident in that, then just concentrate on that experience for a short time. So I wanted to read something from this book. Um, Craig Preston, he's one of Jeffrey's students, I believe. And um, he 
put together this book. It's for people wanting to study Tibetan. And he's using um, this very text, uh, Judson Chucky Gelson's text, and kind of going line by line and showing how to translate it. And he, he also has little commentaries here and there <laughs> um, about some of the more obscure points. So I just wanted to read um, what he says here about this idea of Prasangika is saying that the mere, uh, the, the, the illustration of the person is um, the mere eye that is labeled. How it goes. Um, yeah, the mere eye, which is designated in dependence on the five aggregates, is the illustration of the person. So he says, what distinguishes the consequent school, the Prasangikas, from all the other schools of tenets? is their complete rejection of establishment by way of own character. That's one of those synonyms of inherent existence. Sometimes we say existing from its own side, existing by way of its own characteristics. So it's just another way of saying inherent existence. So Prasangikas completely reject that. Establishment by way of own character means that when the imputed object, such as the person, is sought, something is found that is the imputed object. So all the other schools say that when you look for the person, you will find something, something you can point to as being the person. So it's either all the five aggregates or just the mental consciousness or the mind basis of all or a subtle mental consciousness, something. They always find something they can point to and say, that's the person. So they say the person is designated to something and that something is the person. Yeah. So they say both. They say like the subtle mental consciousness, person is designated or imputed to that, but then that is also the person, the person that creates karma, experiences the results, goes from one life to the next, and so on. So they say there's always something you point to. The outlook of the consequence school is radically different. The person is designated in dependence on something, like the mental consciousness, and that something is not the person. And they also say it differently. They don't say uh, uh, is designated to the mental consciousness, but in dependence on the mental consciousness or the aggregates or whatever. So there's a, they, they say it in a different way. I don't fully understand the difference. It's kind of subtle. <laughs> but anyway, when you're talking about the prasangikas and you know how they say everything is merely labeled, I think you have to be careful to say is merely labeled independence on the basis of imputation rather than is labeled onto or to the basis of imputation. Somehow that makes a difference. But yeah. when we get to volume seven in the Friday night class, <laughs> if we're still alive. <laughs> um, yeah, this, this will hopefully become more clear. Then there's volume eight, volume nine. <laughs> yeah, so the Prasangika school is not easy. And um, before we go on, I want to 
uh, take a little side trip um, because I think it was last week or the year, week before when talking about ultimate truths, there was a line that said, true cessations are ultimate truths. Remember that? And um, so I, I read, I heard and read that, that there is debate among the Galupas about whether true cessations are emptinesses. So it seems that all, well, actually he said it, he says it in here. <laughs> He's holding about it in here. Um, so it seems that the Galupas are unanimous in agreeing that true cessations are ultimate truths. Yeah. And, but when it comes to, are they emptinesses? There's a difference which I, I found surprising because I thought, well, ultimate truth is emptiness. Mm -hmm. So how could something be an ultimate truth and not be an emptiness? Mm -hmm. But it seems there is that school of thought. Um, so, yeah. And in um, Guy Newland's book, is it Guy Newland? The Two Truths? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Guy Newland's book, The Two Truths, uh, chapter nine, he goes into this debate. I'm just going to mention a few things, but not all the different. <laughs> so if somebody's interested, you can look in, into, into his book. I'll just um, the main points. Okay, so the first bullet point says, um, true cessations are ultimate truth. So this is the reason why they say that true cessations are ultimate truths. And the reason is because they exist as they appear to the minds of meditative equipoise that directly realize them. And in parentheses, they are directly realized by liberated paths. So I don't know if you remember, uh, we talked about this, this un uninterrupted paths, liberated paths, or sometimes they're translated as path of release. What is venerable use? Liberated path, liberated path, path. Of, liberated mm -hmm. path. Yeah, some translators say path, path of release. Right? It's just a different way of translating it. Um, so, just going back, um, when a person, like let's say a bodhisattva, they're on the path of preparation, so they already have an inferential realization of emptiness. They also have calm abiding. They have the union of calm abiding and special insight, observing emptiness. And let's say they're right at the end of the path of preparation, just about to enter the path of seeing, becoming an Arya. And they're in meditative equipoise. They're meditating on emptiness. And um, the, there's still a conceptual appearance of emptiness, a mental image of emptiness. But that has become thinner and thinner. Finally, it disappears altogether. And the, they have the direct realization of emptiness. Yeah, remember that? <laughs> well, that's what they say anyway. I'm not speaking from experience. And so, um, so when they have that uh, very first moment of directly realizing emptiness, that's when they enter the path of seeing, they become an Arya, and also uh, the first ground, first Bodhisattva ground. So that's a really important um, milestone on the path. 
And the very first moment of that experience is called an uninterrupted path mm -hmm. because it, it's said to lead directly to the next moment, the liberated path, without interruption. And it's an uninterrupted path that's actually the antidote, the, uh, the remedy, the thing that eliminates the um, whatever afflictions are being abandoned. So at that point, it would be the, which afflictions are abandoned at that first moment? Acquired afflictions. All the acquired, yeah, all the acquired afflictive obscurations are abandoned the first moment of the path of seeing. So the uninterrupted path is the thing that abandons them, that knocks them out. And then the very next moment is called the liberated path. And, and it's with the liberated path that you actually attain a true cessation. In that first moment, you don't have a true cessation. That first moment, the uninterrupted path is getting rid of the afflictions but you don't yet have the cessation of those afflictions. So that only happens with the next moment, the liberated path. So true cessations are attained with a liberated path. And so it is said, and I'm not sure who said this, if it's the Buddha who said it or Nagarjuna who said it, I don't know, it's just they all seem to agree that with the liberated path, when an Arya has that liberated path, you know, they're in, Direct, they're in meditative equipoise directly realizing emptiness, but they also directly perceive the true cessation. The true cessation is also directly perceived. And, and um, if you remember the definition of, of a ultimate truth, anybody remember the definition? Not the whole long one, but <laughs> roughly, what is the... What is a ultimate truth according to Prasangika? It's an object found by an ultimate valid cognizance. I mean, that's that's not the exact wording, but roughly, it's an object that's found by an uh, ultimate valid cognizer, and the ultimate. Valid cognizer is mainly the Arya's wisdom of meditative equipoise, directly realizing emptiness. So it's that direct realization of emptiness. So whatever is found by that mind is an ultimate truth. And since liberated path is that type of mind, and it's finding a true cessation, therefore a true cessation must be an ultimate truth. So that seems to be the reason why. And also... The fact that it as it says here they exist as they appear so the true cessation realized by the aria um, there's no false appearance it doesn't appear inherently existing even though it's not inherently existing so it appears empty of inherent existence and it is empty of inherent existence. so it exists as it appears so that seems to be the reason why they say that true cessations are ultimate truth. So there doesn't seem to be any dispute about that. But then the second bullet point, are true cessations emptinesses? So here there's different points of view. Panchan Sonam Drakpa, um, you've heard of him, right? <laughs> really he often has diverging views about things. But you know, I mean, some of the Geshis we have, uh, I mean, he, he was the main textbook writer for Dripong Losme, I think. Mm -hmm. 
and Geshe Daro, Geshe, Geshe. Uh, Geshe, Geshe Lundrup. I think that's their monastery. So it's good to know this because they might, it's possible in their teachings, they might <laughs> you know, put forth this view. Um, yeah, so Panchen Sanandrakpa and some other scholars say that true cessations are not emptinesses. And they have uh, they, they have quotations from Nagarjuna and also Lama Tsongkhapa that they use to support this view, but they also have reasons. So one of the reasons of um, Panchen Sonandrakpa is that um, that's a good it's a good point. Um, in the case of an emptiness, there's an object of negation. What's the object of negation? Inherent existence. Does it exist? No. No. It's totally non-existent. So the object of negation of emptiness is is a non-existent. But then with true cessations, um, the object of negation of, for a true cessation is what? Is the whatever the level of afflictions? Right. Is. Afflictions. Do they exist? Yes. 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 <laughs> so there's a difference. Um, in the case of an emptiness, mm -hmm. the object of negation is something that never existed. But in the case of a true cessation, the object of negation is something that did exist. And so I guess Panchen Sonandrapa says that's something wrong there. Mm -hmm. um, he says if you say that a true cessation is an emptiness, then that means there's an em there, are, there are emptinesses that have existent objects of negation and so that's his reason one of his reasons for not agreeing with that on the other hand Jetson Choki Gelson the author of of this text that we're following and others um, say that true cessations are emptinesses and they also have quotations quotations from many Lama Tsongkhapa it seems and they also have reasons. So, um, yeah, it, it's it's a complicated topic, and I don't fully understand all the arguments. I just wanted to let you know about this because I found it quite interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm still kind of baffled by this whole idea of true cessations and nirvana being emptinesses. I've heard it before, but I never really thought about it and never really understood it. So, um, but because it, it came up in the samsara, nirvana, buddha nature, that, that section. Although I have to say, I don't find it very clear in there. <laughs> um, yeah, so I hope to talk with Venerable Children at some time and get this clear. But anyway, so this is as much as I understand. And if you do want to read more, you can read that section of the two truths. And also in Illumination of the Thought, um, which we're studying with Geshe Yeshe Lundrup, towards the end of chapter five, we might get there this time, I don't know. Um, there's also a section in there about that. Mohamed um, Sankapa talking about cessations and emptinesses and nirvanas and, and so on and quoting from Chandrakirti and um, Nagarjuna, mainly Chandrakirti. Yeah, so he mainly is quoting Chandrakirti 
um, who says that true cessations are ultimate truths. And Chandrakirti, in turn, refers to statements of the Buddha that point to that conclusion. So, I hope what that does doesn't... he say that they're emptiness? It's not completely clear. I was trying to read that section oh, in Jinpa's sure. translation. And at one point he's 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 saying he's saying not ultimate truth but the ultimate nature of phenomena, the ultimate nature of phenomena, mm-hmm. and and um, the true cessations are that. I'd have to go back and read it okay. again. It's it's not easy <laughs> to understand, but I'm still trying to explore this and yeah. So I hope that doesn't make you more confused, but it's just more information about how Sangika it's. A complicated school. <laughs> well, I find it reassuring that they're not clear about all the points of this very profound view. You know. Yeah. Well, I guess too, when you read the Buddha's words in the Perfection of Wisdom Sutra, and then you read Nagarjuna's words and his texts, and you read Chandrakirti's words, and yeah, it's you know often. Especially when they're just speaking in verses, they're the they're, you know the verse um, the texts are just written in verses, so they're very succinct. And then you know it's like, what is he saying there? <laughs> um, using reasoning to interpret, but you know different people come come over with different, different interpretations. Mm-hmm. He's saying this. No, he's saying that. <laughs> so um, yeah, very interesting. They must have very juicy debates over these points. Okay, so then last time we started looking at how Prasangika explains object possessors or minds, consciousnesses. We looked at most of these um, points, but um, let's see, I think the second, yeah, um, the second from the bottom, it says sentient beings sense consciousnesses are always mistaken because things appear inherently existent to them. This is an important point um, in the Prasangika school. Um, although I think others, some other schools may also say that sentient beings sense consciousnesses are always mistaken. Like Chidamatra. Chidamatra, I'm pretty sure I was trying to find it and I did, yeah, because they say that things appear externally existing, you know, not uh, something coming from a seed in the mind. So everything we see with our senses appears like it's out there in a different entity, different nature from the mind externally Mm -hmm. existent remember Mm -hmm. so they say everything appears that way to our senses at least to sentient beings those who haven't realized emptiness and um yeah so they also say that sentient beings sense consciousnesses are mistaken and i suspect that yogacara svatantrika madhyamika would also say the same thing because they also, they're like the Chittamatrans, they refute external existence and say, I think, I couldn't find it exactly, but yeah, I think they also say that things appear as if they're externally existent to our sense consciousnesses and most sentient beings aren't able to tell that 
they don't exist that way. I think they would also say that sending beings sense consciousnesses are mistaken. But when it comes to the others, because the, Photantrika in general refutes true existence, right? They refute true existence, but not inherent existence. They think things do exist inherently. And they would say that things appear inherently existing to sentient beings sense consciousnesses, but that's fine because things do exist that way. So that's not a mistake. But then when it comes to true existence, which they say is the object of negation, that's the false mode of existence that appears. But they say that it doesn't appear to sense consciousnesses. True existence doesn't appear to sense consciousnesses. It appears to mental consciousness. So I guess they would say that, yeah, when we see the thermos, it doesn't appear truly existing, but when we think about it, yeah, we start having thoughts about it at that time, then um, it appears truly existent. That seems to be what they say. But other than those two schools, the Chidamatrans and the Yogacharas, the Tantrika Madhyamikas, I think all the other schools would say that sentient beings, unless it's a wrong consciousness, like seeing rabbit horns or something, um, but yeah, ordinary consciousnesses, sense, sense consciousness of sentient beings, they're fine, not mistaken. That clear? Then the last bullet point is sentient beings' mental consciousnesses and yogic direct perceivers can be mistaken or non-mistaken. Um, this is a little tricky um, because for sentient beings, it said, according to Prasangika, the only mind, the only consciousness of, of a sentient being that isn't mistaken is the direct realization of emptiness. Mm -hmm. So amongst all the sentient beings, which again means anybody that's not a Buddha, <laughs> all the beings who are not Buddhas, there's only one kind of consciousness that isn't mistaken, and that's the direct realization of emptiness. So when an Arya, again you have to be an Arya, and you're in meditative equipoise, directly perceiving emptiness, um, that's the only non-mistaken mind, because mm -hmm. the only thing that appears to that mind is emptiness, mm -hmm. and emptiness never appears with, um, uh, it never appears as truly existing or inherently existing, it always appears as it, as it exists. And, and conventionalities don't appear. So there's no appearance of inherent existence to that mind. And so that mind is completely non-mistaken. But all the other minds, every other mind of a sentient being is mistaken in some way or another. Well, the main way is everything appears, whatever, whatever object appears, appears inherently existing. And... Um, I guess even an Arya who who has realized emptiness, they still have there's still the appearance of inherent existence. I have to think about that more. But anyway, that's what they say. This is what Prasangika say. 
And so that last bullet point when it says sentient beings' mental consciousnesses and yogic direct perceivers can be mistaken or non-mistaken, the only example of a non-mistaken mental consciousness or yogic direct perceiver is that direct realization of emptiness. Every other type of mental consciousness, like when we think about things, we remember things, or also even the inferential realization of emptiness, even when the person has inferential realization of emptiness, it's still mistaken because um, emptiness appears with a um, conceptual image, mental image, and that's a conventional truth, and that appears mixed with inherent existence, appears inherently existing. So this always the appearance of inherent existence, except to the Arya's direct realization of emptiness. And the same with yogic direct perceivers. Um, there's different kinds of yogic direct perceivers. And one difference between Prasangika and um, the other schools, the other schools say that only Aryas can have yogic direct perceivers. Only in a, They only exist in the mind of an Arya. But the Prasangikas say non-Aryas can have yogic direct perceivers. For example, um, ordinary being can have a yogic direct perceiver of impermanence, subtle impermanence, or the coarse selflessness of persons, like the uh, you know, absence of a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. So an ordinary ordinary being can have a yogic direct perceiver of those those objects, subtle impermanence and course selflessness but those objects are conventional truths subtle impermanence is a conventional truth of course uh, selflessness of persons is also a conventional truth so when they appear they would appear with um, appearance of inherent existence they appear inherently existing even though it's a direct yogic perception yeah, I mean the examples in the in the commentaries, um, the examples of a mistaken yogic direct perceiver that they gave were uh, in the minds of ordinary beings, non aryas, mm -hmm. having a yogic direct perceiver of subtle impermanence or a yogic, yogic direct perceiver of selflessness of persons, and because they're not an arya, it's a non arya, they haven't yet directly realized emptiness, so they're always still going to have the appearance of inherent existence. But then I was thinking that even an Arya, in the mind of an Arya, if they're meditating on subtle impermanence, they have a yogic direct perceiver of subtle impermanence, I think it would still be mistaken because it's not, not emptiness. emptiness. It's not emptiness. It's still a conventional truth. So that was my thinking. I didn't read it in any of the commentaries, so I'm not sure, but it would seem to make sense. But yeah. When subtle appearance, subtle impermanence appears to the mind of an Arya, even when they're in meditative equipoise, it would still have appearance of inherent existence. Mm -hmm. Not a hundred percent sure. I have to investigate. Because that. they're not perceiving the emptiness of the impermanent phenomenon. Yeah, I think only it's only emptiness that can appear without, except to a Buddha, of course, 
<laughs> well, the emptiness can appear without that um, overlay of inherent existence, mm -hmm. that false appearance of inherent existence. Mm -hmm. That's my understanding. Thank you. Need to check. But in the case of the Buddha, talk, not talking about sentient beings, but Buddhas, every single mind of a Buddha sense consciousness, mental consciousness, yogic direct perceivers, all of their minds are non-mistaken. A Buddha's mind never has any mistake, no appearance of inherent existence. Although they do say that the Buddha, the Buddha sees what we see. <laughs> the Buddha sees our minds and sees what our minds see. And if our minds see inherent existence, then that means the Buddha must see inherent existence too, through our minds. But they probably say, well, but that's not the Buddha's own uh, mind, their own perception, but rather they're seeing through sentient beings. They probably have a way of saying that, but, um, you know. Mm -hmm. No fault of the Buddha's mind if they see inner existence. So is there like a there must so there must be a different definition of yogic direct perceivers according to the Prasangika. Yeah. Because you know the way it's spoke in the what we learn from the Salpantrika site, it, it must be in the mind of an area. Right? I don't I'm know. I'm looking that, at the definition. What is the definition? A non-conceptual, non-mistaken, exalted knower in the continuum of a superior, produced from a meditative stabilization that's the union of calm abiding and special. Yeah, so they must have a different definition. I, mm -hmm. I didn't find it anywhere, but there must be one somewhere. Yeah. Also, Prasangika has a different definition for valid cognizer <laughs> that's coming next. <laughs> and also direct perceivers. So they're quite, they're really different than the others. Uh, so the next slide. Yeah. So this wasn't actually in Jetson Shuki Gelson's text. I got it from somewhere else. But because um, the other schools, the except for uh, Prasangika, all the other schools, um, say that a valid cognizer has to be new. Remember, a new, mm -hmm. incontrovertible, mm -hmm. or non-deceptive. Which one does Venerable use? Incontrovertible? Incontrovertible. Yeah, or some say non-deceptive. Um, so, so all the other schools say it has to be new, whereas for Prasangika, they knock out the new, <laughs> and they mm -hmm. only have um, non-deceptive or incontrovertible. So that's the definition of a valid cognizer for prasangika. A valid cognizer is a mind that is non-deceptive and incontrovertible, or incontrovertible to its main object, meaning it, 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 it's, it perceives, it knows its object in a completely correct way, and it's able to eliminate superimpositions about it, able to lead to certainty about it. So that's good enough doesn't have to be new or fresh. And so, according to um, Prasangika then, uh, you know, it's not just the first moment of a incontrovertible experience of an object, but the second moment, the third moment, the fourth moment, 
and so on are all valid cognizers. Whereas the other schools would say only the first moment is a valid cognizer, and the other moments after that are called subsequent cognizers, and they are not valid. They're still, they can still be correct and incontrovertible, but they lack this newness, freshness of the first moment, and so they don't qualify as valid cognizers. So that's important to understand, to, to, to look at the next point. Um, so there are two kinds of valid direct perceivers, conceptual and non-conceptual. So this is, again, very different from the other schools. Um, do you remember what the other schools say? What, what are the criteria for a, a valid direct perceiver? Non-conceptual non and non-mistaken. I think that was the definition. Oh, and then valid. So if it's mm -hmm. valid, just direct perceiver itself has to be non-conceptual and non-mistaken. And then valid on top of that means it has to be new and incontrovertible. Mm -hmm. So all those criteria. Um, so Prasangika don't make that requirement that a valid direct perceiver has to be non-conceptual. They say it can be conceptual. So this is very strange, <laughs> or unusual, or different, I should say. Um, so a, an example of a conceptual valid direct perceiver is an example given here. Um, the second moment of an inferential cognizer realizing sound is impermanent. Mm -hmm. That's one, um, one example. So the, um, the other schools would say that in the first moment of an inferential cognizer that realizes sound is impermanent, the first moment of that realization, um, that is a valid um, that is a valid inference, right? Mm -hmm. And I think um, Prasangika would agree. Yeah, it's a valid inference. But then the second moment, and third and fourth, and so on, the other schools would say those are subsequent cognizers, mm -hmm. C conceptual, conceptual, because a subsequent cognizer can either be conceptual or it can be a, a perception, like the second moment of seeing blue the third moment of seeing blue, and so on. So those are non-conceptual ones. So um, the second moment, and, and so on, of an inferential cognizer realizing sound is impermanent. So I don't fully understand myself, but let me see what they say. Um, Prasangika say this is a, a direct valid perceiver because it doesn't need a reason. It, 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 it can arise without the need for a reason or a sign. The first moment, that first moment of the inferential um, cognizer realizing sound is impermanent, that required a sign, a reason, like sound is impermanent because it's a product. So the mind realized sound is impermanent because of the reason it's a product. So that first moment was dependent on a sign or a reason. But the second moment and third moment and so on are no, no longer need a sign or a reason. 
they um, they are induced by that first moment. And so because they occur without the need for a sign or a reason, then they're not, they're no longer inferential. They're no longer inferential. Um, I think that's the reason. And there's only two types, there's only two types of valid, valid cognizers. There's valid inference, inference and valid direct perceivers. So if the second moment isn't a valid inference, it has to be a valid, valid direct, direct perceiver. It's the only other But it's choice. conceptual. It's conceptual. So they don't make that requirement. They don't, that term, direct perceiver, yeah, winsome. Um, it doesn't have to be non-conceptual. It can be conceptual. No. So I found in one one explanation um, for the other schools, the word direct. Okay, when they say direct perceiver, the word direct um, is from the viewpoint of the mind, the subject, how it apprehends the object. It's um, a mind is direct when it apprehends an object directly, nakedly, without a mental image. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Like our eye consciousness can directly know the object without any conceptual appearance or mental image in between. So that's the meaning of direct. So it has more to do with the way the mind is cognizing the object. And for prasangika, that they do agree that that is one meaning of direct, knowing the object nakedly. But another meaning of direct is from the viewpoint of an object, the object. When a mind knows its object without depending on a sign or a reason, then it's, it's a direct perceiver. That makes sense. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it has the two meanings of direct: knowing nakedly without a, a mental image, and also knowing the object without the need for a sign, a reason. And so, um, now this this example of the second moment and third and so on moment of. The inferential realization of, of sound is impermanent, those subsequent moments arise without the need for a sign. Only the first moment needed the sign reason, the second later moments didn't need the sign. And so from that point of view, they're direct. It's hard. <laughs> but anyway, I think these kind of things you often have to hear again and again and again. <laughs> Get it. And then this, there's a second example there of a conceptual direct, uh, valid direct perceiver. The memory of blue induced by a sense direct perceiver apprehending blue. Okay, so you look at the blue thermos mm -hmm. and then later you go back to your room and you can remember the blue thermos, remember the blue color of the thermos. Um, and so that's a conceptual mind. Memory is always conceptual. Mm -hmm. And so you're, you know, you're uh, engaging with blue via a mental image, a conceptual image. Um, but that memory of blue, um, 
didn't require a reason or a sign. You didn't need a reason to be able to remember blue. It was just because you saw blue, you had that, you know, sense direct perceiver apprehending blue, and that was enough to later remember it. So because it didn't require a sign, a reason to have that, that memory, then it's also considered a direct perceiver, valid direct perceiver. So all memories are valid direct perceiver? If <laughs> <laughs> According to Prasangika, we have to, we have to um, as long as they're correct, I mean, wow. if you have a mistaken memory, a distorted mm. memory, but yeah, because they, they occur without the need for a reason or a sign. That's enough to be considered a valid direct perceiver. Yeah, yeah, it's like when we study Lorik, usually we study it according to Satrantika. We learn all the Satrantika explanation of things. And that's how they teach it, in, even in the monasteries. They teach the Satrantika view of things. And, and I don't know if there's really a course that's teaching just the Prasangika view of Lorik. It's more like you get in bits and pieces here and there. Like, yeah. So. I heard one of the IBD Geshe's wrote the Prasangika Lorik. Really? Yeah, it's in Tibet. <laughs> I heard that Geshe Jampal at Nalanda, when he teaches Lorik, he teaches according to Prasangika. But I don't know if that's true or not. But also in, um, is it the second volume, volume two, mm -hmm. Foundation of Buddhist, what is it? Foundation of Buddhist Practice. So that explanation in there about the mind and different mental factors, mm -hmm. seven ways of knowing, I think that's mm -hmm. also according to Prasangika. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Kind of mixed, yeah. Well, maybe one day we'll have <laughs> books about Lorik, according to Prasangika. <laughs> but they still seem to think it's valuable to study the Swatrantika version. I'm not sure why, but... Okay, so that's mm -hmm. one type of valid direct perceiver, conceptual. And then the second type is non-conceptual, and that's as normal. As we normally understand a valid direct perceiver, like a sense direct perceiver, apprehending form, eye consciousness apprehending blue ear consciousness apprehending a sound and so on so those are non-conceptual there's no mental image no conceptual appearance mind just directly contacting the object so the then the last bullet point subsequent cognizers are always valid cognizers so this again is different from the other schools. All the other schools say they're, they're mistaken. Not mistaken. They're just not valid because they don't have the newness. They lack the new, fresh aspect of the first moment. Like the train. I always like to remember the engine of the train and the other cars on the train. So the engine is the one that's got the energy, the power. And the others are just being oh. dragged along. <laughs> if, if they get cut off from the engine, they're just going to go going to stop. And so they say, yeah, the first moment of a uh, of a you know of a either a 
sense perception or an inferential cognitive, that first moment has the power, the energy, just like the train engine. And then the second moment and subsequent moments don't have that power. They were just dragged along by the first one. <laughs> but still, but, it, but enough to be a valid cognizer, but being dragged along by the first one. Yeah, still they still, they're still valid in the way that they experience the object. They experience the object correctly, right. incontrovertibly, and so on. So, yeah, the way Prasangika interprets um, the term, it's the term pramana, is the term mm -hmm. for valid um valid cognizer and and pra the first part of that term pra can have several different um meanings i have it here um so one meaning is new another meaning is primary uh or main mm -hmm. and so prasangika you know don't take the new meaning but the main meaning and the meaning of main and so they say a valid cognizer has to be incontrovertible to its main object the object that it's engaging with so as long as it's correct incontrovertible with regard to that object then it's valid it doesn't have to be new I guess that's from Chandra Kirti. I don't know if Nagarjuna made any comments about this, but I think it's mainly Chandra Kirti who did. So, is that clear? <laughs> okay, there's still one more. Um, this again is from Jetson Shuki Gelson's text. Um, it says, if something is a valid direct perceiver, it's not necessarily a directly perceivable object. Um, so way back the beginning, when no, towards the beginning when we started looking at different kinds of objects and there were hidden objects and manifest objects, remember that? depending on whether you need a sign to realize them or not. And then it also said manifest object is synonymous with um, directly perceivable object. And that term, the, the Tibetan term for directly perceivable object is the same term as a valid direct perceiver. It's munsun. Remember that? It's kind of, I don't know, it comes across so well in English, but in Tibetan it's it looks kind of strange. <laughs> um, so that's why, yeah, I translated it as directly perceivable object. So it's actually in the Tibetan, it's saying if it's a ngunsum, it's not necessarily a ngunsum, <laughs> which is weird. But it's because the, that term ngunsum has two different meanings. It can mean mind, but it can also mean object, a direct, directly perceivable object, a manifest object. So anyway, the, the, the example here is a yogic direct perceiver. So a yogic direct perceiver is a valid direct perceiver, but it's not a directly perceivable object. It's not a manifest object because it's a hidden object. And what the commentaries say is that 
even if like to know somebody else's mind you need clairvoyance you need that particular power of seeing another person's mind but to be able to let's say venerable lumsel has a yogic direct perceiver of emptiness or even subtle impermanence um and, and if i had clairvoyance I would not be able to see her yogic direct perceiver unless I realized subtle impermanence or emptiness or whatever it is. Mm. I have to realize the same object mm -hmm. in order to see her mind that is realizing that object. And to be able to realize that object of subtle impermanence or emptiness or whatever, you need a sign. You need to rely on a sign, a reason. Subtle impermanence, is that a manifest object? Mm -mm. No, it's a hidden object. You have to use a sign to realize it. Same with emptiness. Those are not manifest objects. So if she's having, she's sitting there meditating, having a yogic direct perceiver of subtle impermanence, I won't be able to see that her mind that's having that realization unless I have realized uh, subtle impermanence. And for me to realize subtle impermanence, I have to use a sign or reason. It's, I don't know if this is a really important point, but it's something that comes up in the Prasangikas. So don't worry about it if it doesn't make sense. I don't think it's super important. Okay, then four kinds of inferential cognizers. Um, these are mainly just men, just listed, but in um, volume two, it gave examples of these. So inference by the power of the fact. An example of that is uh, realizing that sound is impermanent because it's a product. Or realizing that the I is empty of inherent existence because it's a dependent arising. Then the second one, inference through renown. Um, they always give this example of realizing that the rabbit bearer is suitable to be called moon <laughs> because this is an idea in general. It's something like whatever exists among objects of knowledge can be called by whatever name you want something like that. I never fully understood why, what's the point of that. But anyway. So like there's, there's some sort of agreement among minds that, that give, give it the object some relevance. You can give it a name. Like I, I think last time we talked about this, I gave the, the cars, the Abbey cars, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um, you know, we can, we can give them names and then everybody will no, Call them, yeah, they'll, they'll go along with that name. So it's like you can give a name to anything. And as long as it's agreed upon <laughs> by a majority of people, then that becomes its name. And the third one, this is kind of unusual, it's called Inference Through Analogy. And in the volume two, it says, this realizes its object by understanding that it is similar to something else. And the example given is um, the Kotala Palace in Tibet. That was built by the fifth Dalai Lama. 
Um, so the Potala is a slightly obscure phenomena, slightly hidden phenomena for people who've never been to Lhasa. But if someone shows them a model of the Potala, okay, so if you have a model or maybe even a photo, a photo would probably do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but anyway. Huh? Yeah. So if you're shown a, a model of the Potala and, and say, it looks like this, mm -hmm. then they will understand what the Potala is. So you're using an analogy to understand. So I guess inference through analogy would be understanding what the Potala is like through being shown an image, um, a model. Probably a 3D model would be much better than a, a photo. Mm -hmm. And then in th fourth is inference through belief. So this is the kind of inference for understanding very hidden phenomena. Um, like the example they always give is in the scriptures, the Buddha said, uh, giving is the cause of wealth and ethics. Is it ethics is the cause of uh, what? Hmm? human life or something? Um, anyway, giving is the cause of wealth. So that's not something we can, it, 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 it isn't something we can know with direct perception. It's not something we can know through the other kinds of inference, like inference through the power of the fact. You can't use a logical sign to prove that. So we need to rely on the scriptures of the Buddha, but you still have to go through some process of checking to make sure it's free of faults. The Buddha's words are free of faults. So anyway, that's fourth kind of inference. But it can also be condensed into two types of inference because number two and number three are types of number one. So you can also say there's just two kinds of inferences, which I think is what it says in volume two. So the inferential cognition of emptiness is inference by power of the fact? Yeah, yeah. That's something we can know. We don't have to rely on Buddha's words. We can know it. By, um, I forget how it works, but the, me the meaning of that expression, power of the fact, but because, for example, using the reason of dependent arising mm -hmm. to realize that an object is empty of inherent existence because, mm -hmm. yeah, the nature, the nature of the object is that it's a dependent arising. So as long as you can realize that, you're realizing a fact mm -hmm. about the object, something like that. So we've just got five minutes left, and we've actually come to the end of the section on object possessors. But the next, I put up one more slide because when we were going through the Svatantrika school, there was this list of things that um, so, so Trantika, Chitta Mantra, and Svatantrika um, agree on. These are all assertions that they have. And, and I said, when we got to Prasangika, we could look at this again, because we might understand better. <laughs> so we'll just do a few of these, and then we can stop. So the first one says, direct perceivers are necessarily non-conceptual. That's what we've always learned. <laughs> uh, yeah, direct perceivers have to be non-conceptual. 
So those schools agree with that. But Prasangika, as we've just learned, says no, direct perceivers can be conceptual or non-conceptual. And then number two, subsequent cognizer is necessarily not valid. What does Prasangika say? Mm -hmm. All of them are valid. All of them are valid. All subsequent cognizers are valid. Because a subsequent cognizer has to be a correct mind. It has to be induced by a valid mind. Um, and, and having the same object as that first moment of the valid mind. So it has to be incontrovertible. If you look, look at the definition of subsequent cognizer. So it, the only problem with it is it's not new. But according to Prasangika, it doesn't have to be new to be valid. So subsequent cognizers are always valid. Number three is a little more complicated. Um, says, if a consciousness is mistaken to its determined object, it is necessarily a wrong consciousness. And then the term determined object is another term for a main object or object of engagement. So the main object that the mind is dealing with. And um, so, so yeah, the other, the other schools would say that if, if a mind is wrong, mistaken to its determined object, main object it's dealing with, it's a wrong consciousness. But according to Prasangika, a consciousness can be mistaken to its main object, but still be valid. For example, um, the mind that realizes sound is impermanent, so having the realization of sound is impermanent. Um, that object, even though it's correct about sound being impermanent, but still the object would appear inherently existing. And so it's mistaken from that point of view. But it's still valid. It's not a wrong consciousness. I think there was an example that came up in, um, yeah, in the samsara Nirvana Buddha Nature book recently about um, like an eye consciousness seeing a flower. So that eye consciousness can be correct with regard to the flower, that it is a flower. And maybe you're right about the color and the shape and everything. However, the flower will appear inherently existing. So it appears to be an inherently existing flower. And the mind is wrong about that. Not wrong, mistaken. <laughs> mistaken. So it's mistaken to the appearance of the flower being um, inherently existing, but it's still correct mm -hmm. with the flower being a flower, um, whatever shape and color it is. So there's always, for sentient beings anyway, there's always a mistaken element in every single consciousness we have, except that direct realization of emptiness. And so there can be a mistake with regard to the determined object, the main object. The other schools would say, oh, then it's a wrong consciousness. <laughs> yeah. But Prasangika say no. Uh, it can still be a correct and valid consciousness, even if there's a mistake 
with its determined object. So let's stop there. This is enough <laughs> mind-bending stuff for today. And in fact, the last two I'm not completely 100% sure about. Sorry, Venerable, I know we're over time, but um, I thought with the lower schools, the consciousness can be mistaken. Oh, I guess with respect just to the appearing object, right? It's a meaning generality that appears, but then it's a conceptual appearance, but it's still a correct consciousness. Right? Yeah, because conception. Yeah, so there's two objects. There's the appearing object, and then there's the determined object, or or sometimes engaged called object, object of engagement, or I don't know, different objects, okay. different names for it. So if a, a consciousness can be mistaken to the appearing object and still be valid, like all conceptual minds are mistaken to their appearing objects, but they can still be valid. But any mind that's mistaken to its determined object, the main object, then it can't be valid. It's, it's always wrong. Okay, so let's stop. So funny because of it. Oh, wait until we get to processing geek. I'll be on familiar ground. It's like <laughs> <laughs> some sure. of it. Some, some of, of it. it. Yes. Yeah. yeah, a little bit. But studying Madhyamak Avatara, like Geshe, what Geshe Lundrup is teaching, the illumination is the commentary to the Madhyamak Avatara. Some of this stuff comes up in there, usually in the sixth chapter later. Later in the sixth chapter, but so it's good to have some, some familiarity, and you'll you'll hear the stuff again. Don't worry. <laughs> Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious body mind not yet born arise and grow. May that born have no decline, but increase forevermore.